Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Just before we begin today, both Jen and I want to extend our deep sadness at the terrible loss of life in Nova Scotia over the weekend. Our hearts go out to our Nova Scotian friends, and we feel the suffering of all the affected communities and the families and friends of the victims. We're recording the show just after the uh, shootings have happened, so of course we don't really have any details to report just yet, nor do we have anything really to say about it except for the fact that it's obviously a deeply horrific event, and we're all very touched and moved. Our hearts are with you, Nova Scotia, and all the love goes to you today. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a $1 million, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Skip the hold music and paperwork and sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand. You'll get a $100 fee credit. Once again, the place to go is wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. Start a 30-day trial and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. From Canada land, this is Oppo. I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gerson, and I'm pantsless in Calgary. Let me tell you, if the old hotness was going braless, the new hotness is going underwearless. Embrace that trend. Did I overdress? You know what? Hey, just be happy that I wore something to cover <laughs> myself up on the cameras, all right? So, Sandy, I mean, I think it's been well established that I've gone a little uh, crazy as a result of this pandemic. I am sort of deeply concerned about, obviously, not just the pandemic itself, but what's going to happen to us over the next, you know, two, three, four, five, even ten years. I think that the the future is very, very hard to see. And a lot of it is uh, rooted to what's going to happen to the economy. Everybody knows that the economy is already going through a convulsion. What is that going to look like? We still are only dimly seeing the outlines of it, but we are now starting to pivot to take a look at that more in depth. So as a result, we decided to bring in someone who understands the economy at a much deeper level than either of us. And I was surprised by some of the directions that we took and some actually extremely constructive suggestions. Sandy. 
Sandy, we were talking about what to do in today's show, and, you know, it's time for us to pivot back into the serious world of COVID and leave behind us the land of the big cats. And, you know, you were noticing that there hasn't really been a lot of in-depth conversation about the long-term economic impacts of COVID. Right now, we're still sort of blinded by the, the daily panic and horror of the pandemic. And as a result, nobody's really delved into just what this is going to mean. Um, and part of that is because we just don't yet know what this is going to mean for um, the future economy and, and our near and long-term futures. So um, as a result, we decided to bring in someone who understands much more about the economy than either of us. And that is a Dr. Lindsay Teds, who is an associate professor and scientific director of fiscal and economic policy at the School of Public Policy in the University of Calgary. And, you know, we just had a really great conversation about what we know and probably more importantly, what we don't know about the economic fallout of COVID. We went into some really interesting places and interesting directions that I didn't anticipate. But at the same time, we are really just beginning to scratch the surface of where is the economy? You know, how do we begin the recovery? We are, most parts of Canada are now experiencing that we are beginning to flatten the curve. We are starting to get there, a very fragile still and a very long way to go. So everybody keep it up. But we are also beginning to think about what comes after. Absolutely. And also some horrific uh, concerns as well. I mean, as Dr. Ted's pointed out, what we're doing to the economy is really unprecedented in modern times. So everybody is groping in the dark for a sense of what the future is going to bring. And truth is, a lot of it is unknown. Lindsay Teds, the Associate Professor and Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Dr. Teds, that is a very impressive title, if I do say so myself. Uh, I didn't come up with it. I think there's something about when there's too many men running things, you end up with these <laughs> very, very convoluted um, titles. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty, pretty dark right now, and I'm kind of hoping that you might be able to either affirm that my darkness is justified and therefore I should be stocking up my cold cellar or uh, tell me that I'm overreacting a tiny bit and I need to chill the fuck out. Either way, I can spin it to my advantage. So, you know, please, please help me out here. Well, we don't know. <laughs> oh, so cold cellar it is. Thank you, Dr. Ted's. <laughs> you know, I'm an economist on the one hand, <laughs> on the other hand. So, I mean, we're really feeling our way through the dark here. When it was back in February, that, this is when a number of Canadian and American economists sort of realized that we were heading into something we have never experienced in our lifetimes. Um, it was, we were seeing, like, the, one of the things that can be quite frustrating is the real kinds of data that people are looking for, unemployment numbers, GDP, all of that kind of stuff. You, it takes so long for those numbers to come in. And so we were reading tea leaves is what I call it. You know, I was noticing a huge increase in people on um, like Reddit and Facebook talking about that they had just been laid off. We had seen um, uh, restaurant um, data, uh, a decline in people going to restaurants. So you're getting these little pieces of information. And at mid-February, there was a general consensus about, at least from a co younger economists online, that this was serious. And we needed to um, really think about the fact that what was coming um, was a complete shutdown of our economy and we needed to get things in place. And I just want to like, like get into that. 
Is there any historic precedent for this at the scale in the modern era? There is nothing like this. Like, even when we are comparing some of the numbers from the Great Depression in the 30s, uh, we are looking at using a scale on the, the vertical axis of numbers we have never used before in terms of declines. It's incredibly unprecedented. And I'd like, one of the things I've been saying, this is the first recession in our lives that hasn't been created by the banking sector. Hmm. So it's completely different from all of the things that we have experienced before. And this is a voluntary shutdown. Like we're purposefully doing this. This isn't something, you know, with the 2008 recession, this was, you know, um, you know, the banking industry and some very bizarre uh, ways of making money and what have you. We need to make sure that we keep people healthy, happy, alive. Um, and it's not just alive. I think what, what we're forgetting about is people who are getting the coronavirus and recovering are left with long-term health consequences. Their lung capacity is not coming back um, in a short amount of time. And in fact, they're now predicting it might be 20, 30 years of people who get this virus where their lung capacity is diminished. I'm worried that we focus too much on the deaths and not on the disability that's going to come out of this, which also has long-term consequences. I'd like to point out the irony of one thing is that for, for once, this isn't capitalism's fault, which is, which no, is quite yeah. ironic, which is quite <laughs> ironic considering, considering uh, the, the type of uh, political conversation that's happening around the pandemic as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that, that is quite an interesting point. And so in order to get the um, economy shut down and to start thinking about getting it back up, we actually have to use health information. Economists have never had to deal with the re- a recession and programs to get the economy going again based off of health data. We don't have models for this. We don't know how to forecast with something like this. So, you know, there's a lot of um, unknowns, but also a lot of creativity because it's, it's not like people want to go. I think we're all feeling a little stir crazy, especially those of us with kids. We would like to get back out there. Um, I think we're getting some information that tells us we can open things back up. We need to be careful. We need to be cautious. We need to be slow about it. Um, we don't want, because if we end up with a large second wave, then everything that we have done has been for naught. So we have to be careful. But we're going to have to start thinking about how to do this while the virus is still in play and there's no vaccine. And I'd like to point out we need to be very, very careful about all of the tests that are out there for both the coronavirus and for antibodies because we are seeing on a daily basis people wanting these things out there so we can get the economy going. And yet they just don't have the science and the proof behind them. So, Dr. Tez, a question that I have is, who are you reading? Who do you think is, uh, in the economic world, is paying attention to key signifiers? And what are you reading? And what where are economists getting information besides I that? read everything. Mm. <laughs> because right now, it, it is bits and pieces coming in from a variety of different places. You know, we're watching what's going on in Wuhan as it's opening back up. Um, what, what are its cases? And we're already seeing its cases are going back up. So it really is just cautious and being open-minded, not dismissing things, 
I mean, I look at macroeconomist forecasts. I look at microeconomists. We're looking at electricity. We're looking at we're looking at health data, countries around the world, and just trying to think cautiously and be open-minded of where evidence comes from. I want to sum up just one thing about my understanding about the current questions that are on the table right now is that I think there's sort of two schools of thought um, that came out as the as the virus started to really spread. There was a question about whether or not we were going to see a V-shape, a U-shape, or the L-shape lack of recovery, right? And just to explain what that means to anybody who doesn't understand, that means that a V-shape recovery would be uh, okay, the pandemic passes, we start to open up and, you know, economic indicators just shoot right off because there's all this repressed demand and, you know, all of the suppressed buying impulses will, will be reignited. The yep. U-shape recovery would be, uh, best of luck, guys. You know, like, like everybody's laid off, nobody actually has money, and like it's actually going to take time to get back to anywhere close to where we actually were and whether or not we're talking five years, 10 years, 30 years, we don't know. And then, of course, there's the uh, very, very grim L-shaped recovery, which means that things never not a go recovery. Back. Yeah, not a recovery. That that things never really go back to normal as we understood that to be. What Although do you, you missed think... my favorite Canadian one, oh, which dear. is the hockey stick. Oh, that sounds like you an know, L-shape. Deep dive down, but it comes back up. <laughs> Just not very much. Just not. It's not as big of a slope. And okay. it, it, we eventually get back there, but it's not as quick of a rebound. So that would be like between a U-shape and an L-shape. Yeah. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, <laughs> so like, and the reason why we use those shapes, of course, is that you've got to picture like economic uh, activity on a graph, right? So like, what camp are you in in this particular moment? And I won't, I won't hold you to anything, but like, where, where are you right now? Describe your pessimism for me. Right now, I'm the hockey stick. You're a hockey stick, eh? <laughs> I'm a hockey stick. Um... I mean, the longer we're, we're in shutdown, the less likely it's going to be a V. Um, and we're already talking about, you know, here it is, it's April. Um, here in Alberta, we're not talking about potentially opening things up until the end of May or June, um, particularly given our cases. And when it, and it's not like this is everything opening back up quickly in May or June. This, this will be thinking about what can and cannot open back up. There's going to be some sectors that are are going to take a long time to get back, and those are going to be in the arts and culture. It is going to be a long time before we're sitting in a theater watching a ballet or a play or anything like that. Travel is going to take a while because people are going to be nervous. They are going to have to respect social distancing, so planes aren't going to be um, at 100% load for quite a while for both of those reasons, both demand and public health restrictions. Um, you know, I, I never wanted to get on a cruise and I certainly never want to now. Um, but those are going to be things that uh, there's another sector. Um, tourism is going to take a long time for that to come back as people are very cautious and what have you. Well, and that's presuming the borders are even open. And like, I'm like, in my head, I'm, I'm preparing for the borders to be shut down until there's a vaccine. Realistically. Oh, yeah. So, but we can be tourism tourists within our yeah. country. Well, maybe we can, maybe we can't, right? I mean, if there's sporadic outbreaks, then entire provinces could shut down, right? Yeah, it depends. Um, we're also seeing the longer we're in this, the more our changed behaviors take root. And we know that from the psychological literature. It's hard to change behavior, but once you've changed your behavior and you've held it for you know, 30 days, 60 days, it's likely to stay that way. 
So a lot, I mean, I was always a big online shopper. I've never really enjoyed um, big box stores or anything like that. Um, I think a lot of people are seeing the upsides in um, online shopping. It was already about 14% uh, of sales were in the online. I think we are going to see a big change in shopping. And I think those small boutique mom and pop shops probably aren't going to come back from this. And just looking at the data where we've got 70% of Canadian employees are employed by small businesses, and, and most small businesses have only about uh, two weeks to 30 days cash on hand to operate. So what sort of impact do you see us looking at, not only in the retail sector, but in other small small business operations? That's something a lot of us have been talking about is that a lot of businesses, I mean, the downside was is that our tax system tax prefers debt. So a lot of businesses were actually using debt equity to fund their activities rather than their own in-house equity. So they went into this with a very, very high debt load. And now most of the programs that are being offered, while there is some you know, forgiveness and relief there, most of it is just more debt. And businesses are basically saying, especially the small ones. I can't take on more debt. This is, this is the end of me. And they can't take on more debt. They're still having to make their commercial lease payments. Most commercial lease payments are triple net. Yeah. So they also have to pay all the repairs and the property taxes. Yes, there's been property tax deferrals, but municipalities can't, they can't defer that much beyond fall without the federal or provincial governments coming in with a with a big transfer to them. There's just not a lot of flexibility here. So, I mean, here in Calgary, um, we're looking at possibly shedding upwards of 40% of the businesses that were existing, all because of this confluence of factors. Even as the thaw starts to take hold, we're still going to see a massive loss and not just in Calgary, which has its own other uh, huge economic pressure, but across the country. And I think certainly Vancouver in British Columbia is very much a small business economy. And I would uh, imagine that Central Canada, you know, there are major employers in Central Canada, but we still have that, that very high percentage. So what is the fallout? Because at the same time, these small businesses were serving an economic function. They were serving a need. Consumers were, there was demand for the services that they were providing. So what are we going to see? Are we going to see um, consolidation with larger players coming in and taking these on? Or are we going to see more online impact? What's, how do you see this playing out in the future? It's hard to sort of judge, but I know for a fact we're going to lose a lot of our small businesses. What the big question mark is going to be is what entrepreneurs will come in to uh, into a new space. We are seeing some businesses being incredibly innovative in the response to this pandemic. And they are still earning income. Um, I mean, we've got the brewery in town selling flour and yeast because there's, <laughs> there, you can't buy it in the grocery stores. And I think that that's the part that will be interesting. Now, one of the other factors I think is going to be at play with the recovery, much like what we saw after the 2015 oil collapse. And a lot of the oil companies, when they were coming, bringing their activity back online, instead of 
preferring labor, this is when they brought in AI, innovation, big data, where they used to hire 10 people, they were bringing back two or three, and most of these people were actually highly, highly skilled in data analytics and robotics. Um, a lot of businesses will, in fact, use this time to make that last sort of leap towards AI and robotics. That doesn't necessarily mean that that gets rid of jobs. Usually what it means is that it's changing who they're going to look for when they start hiring. It's a completely different skill set. So the people who have the biggest potential of being left behind are the, I mean, I don't even want to call it low skilled because I think we've all agreed now that we see, we see skills in a very different way, but it's just a very different skill set that I think is going to come back online. And I mean, I was talking to Kevin Milligan recently about how do we think about scaling back the CERB. And I'm very, very nervous about it being taken away too soon because those people who are going to struggle through maybe a year or two of economic shocks are people without those kinds of high, but real high skill of data analytics and robotics and our university graduates are going to be deeply, deeply scarred from this labor market contraction. So while it will look like the economy is coming back, some people are going to have a very long-term hit. Uh, and we need to make sure that we keep these programs in place to help them because these it's not going to be a case. I know I, lots of people say to me, well, if they just worked harder, they would have a job. But we've got to stop this idea. Um, this is going to be a big shift in the economy. Lindsay, it looks to me just from what you're saying that that Alberta has is going to be ground zero for all of this, because I mean, all of these confluence of factors are going to hit Alberta particularly hard. Low oil, uh, uh, less educated workers, um, by virtue of the previous boom economy, a lot of focus on small business that's just not going to survive. Like I'm, I'm expecting things to be a bit apocalyptic in Alberta. Um, but what I think people never seem to appreciate is the, is the degree to which Alberta's suffering ripples outward. And I'm hoping to get you to talk a little bit about that. What can the rest of Canada see as a result of, of, of this sort of collapse? I mean, one of the things that I was talking about, Sandy, about Sandy lives in BC. You know, if, if this has a na- very significant negative effect on real estate, BC goes down. BC is the next in the domino to go down as a result of this. Like then, then how does all this affect Central Canada? How does all this affect Quebec? How does all this affect Atlantic Canada as well? Well, it's going to very much um, influence the equalization payments, and it, that'll be fascinating for me as a tax economist because it, it, it is quite. It's very, very different dialogue about taxes here than in, than in BC. Um, and but yes, there is. Even through all of this, um, incomes are still higher here than in the rest of Canada. And while unemployment is high, it was nowhere near the degree of unemployment that uh, the manufacturing industry in southern Ontario um, lived through after the financial collapse or what happened in Atlantic Canada with the collapse of the cod fishery. I totally agree. What's going on here in Alberta is devastating, but Things have also been devastating in other parts of the country. Things were just starting to take that really dark turn before the pandemic hit. And I mean, now we have people talking about as high as 25% unemployment. You know, we're seeing, you know, crude prices. I mean, even Kenny was talking about, you know, potentially negative prices for WCS. I don't think that we have any precedent for that ever, really. No, no, no. (laughs) Now, the unemployment that's a direct result of this pandemic is going to be devastating across the country. Right. um, Without a shadow of a doubt. 
again, what you were saying, BC's got to keep an eye on residential property sector. Um, Alberta here, I get a little frustrated because I think way too much weight on oil and gas as being the savior of our economy. Mm -hmm. This province actually has a huge opportunity, had before, has now, tech, AI, robotics. We've got it here. And we Renewable energies. Mm-hmm. We can attract high-skilled people from Vancouver. So believe it or not, Vancouver, Victoria have a huge tech cluster in both of those areas. We can actually attract those people here because of cost of living. We can attract them here. I mean, we did have the tax credit that got canceled. Well, normally I'm not a big proponent of sector-specific tax policies to do that. The idea of it was to start building a cluster that we actually had a start of. And that community is actually feeling very frustrated by the curtailment of that kind of program to help them build up to attract both the investment as well as the human capital. And so it was, that was actually an action I would normally support. I did not support when it happened here because there was a real reason for it. This episode of OPPO is brought to you by WealthBar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a $1 million, WealthBar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Look, when the market is down, people get anxious about their investments, and that's understandable. But that's why it's important to get the advice of a financial professional. They'll help ensure you've got the right investments for your financial goals and be there to help you make better financial decisions now and for your future. WealthBar offers professional financial advice to all clients, regardless of how much they have to invest. They'll work with you to build a customized financial plan or answer any questions you have about your money. You can even get advice from one of their certified financial planners directly from their app. Skip the hold music and paperwork and sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand. You'll get a $100 fee credit. Once again, the place to go is wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by HelloFresh, Canada's most recommended meal kit. Want to avoid going to the grocery store? Well, HelloFresh makes cooking at home simple, planned, and delicious. Stick to your goals by cooking fresh, homemade dinners every week and stay on track by choosing recipes you'll love to eat. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and prepping, so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. Discover a better cooking routine in 2020. HelloFresh does all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping, so dinner is solved for you on those busy weeknights. Get kid-friendly recipes that are guaranteed to please even the pickiest of eaters. Now, Sandy, I've actually used HelloFresh, and to be honest with you, I love these meal kits. They're super great. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to like not have any idea what you're going to do for dinner that night and then like just pull out a little meal card and be like, oh, I'm doing like fish and potatoes. Great. Everything's ready to go. And because it's all pre-measured and sort of packaged for you in little individual portions, it really is like the epitome of brainless, easy cooking. So for a total of $70 off of your first three weeks of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.ca slash oppo70 and enter the code OPPO70. Once again, that's hellofresh.ca slash oppo70, promo code oppo70 for $70 off your first three weeks of HelloFresh. So capacity of government 
to sustain the kind of program spending that we've we have leapt in with both feet and i think everyone agrees there's there's virtually no dissonant voices that that's what's going to be required but how long can government sustain this i mean people talk in terms of well we need a new marshall plan and i was looking at the marshall plan data the marshall plan in its day in today's dollars was like $170 billion. And the U.S. government has now, the U.S. Federal Reserve has has unleashed something like $2 trillion in support for the economy. And Congress has, has got to, they're talking multiple trillions of dollars in the U.S. We're in the hundreds of billions. Um, how long can we sustain this if we don't have revenue coming in? Depends on the order of government. Municipalities have months. The provincial governments, it depends. Um, Alberta is actually in, despite it all, it's actually in a very strong place. It has significant amount of tax room that it can monopolize, colonize. I don't know what the right word is, but it has a lot of tax room that it can deal with. And it, it went into this. I realize everybody here in Alberta thinks it had a head of heavy debt load. It had the lowest debt load in, in yes. all the land. So the Alberta government can last a long time. Ontario, not so much. Uh, Newfoundland is like a municipality in terms of its fiscal capacity. It, it can't survive very much longer. The federal government, on the other hand, is fine. I mean, we're, we're looking at coming out of this pandemic and including stimulus spending of maybe going back up to 40 to 50% of net debt to GDP. Well, this is nowhere near where it was in the late 80s, early 90s, when it was um, around 80%, right? There's mm -hmm. still a significant amount of fiscal capacity in the federal government. And that's why the federal government is going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. But if the federal government's doing the heavy lifting, it gets to set the, the policies. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're already seeing Justin Trudeau came out and basically said that we don't abandon our environmental goals because we're dealing with a pandemic. So we can imagine, we all knew that the budget that didn't come forward at the end of March was going to be very, very focused on the climate. So we know that they have a package of policies that are going to roll out after this um, as part of its quote unquote stimulus. But one of the things that I'm pretty vocal about is that because this recession is different, it's affecting women much more than any other gender. It is affecting our young university graduates. It's affecting the service sector. It's affecting the arts and culture sector. This is a different recession. And so our stimulus needs to be different. But all I keep hearing about is shovel-ready projects which means mm -hmm. the people yep. that were hit hardest by this are not going to get back into the labor force if we're going to focus on shovel-ready products. Project. Thank you so much for bringing this up. This is something that I have on my notes right here and talking about gender effects because, um, you know, I think we're all women here and Lindsay, you and I both have young children. And let me tell you, this is a very different experience for women with young children than it is yeah. for uh, men and than it is for people of different uh, age groups. Like, I have not been able to work very much, if at all, because I've got kids to take care of. And I think that that situation is reflected very, very widely. You know, when I look at the future, when I look at where this is going to go, the sort of vision that is taking shape in my head is something much closer to the 1950s in terms of lifestyle. You know, you have a fairly limited kind of diet available to you. You're spending a lot more time doing things like gardening and canning. 
Um, and also women are disproportionately in the home looking after their kids while the husbands are making money, particularly in an environment where you have a significant amount of unemployment. There's just going to be like like what happened to women after the end of World War Two was a lot of them got shunted back into the home so mm-hmm. the men could take over the employment because that was sort of seen as like the logical thing. And I'm seeing that exact same argument play out in household after household after household. If one of us has to stay home and one of us has to work, the one who makes more money goes back to work. And that's almost always men. So yeah. like when I look at the future here, I'm not seeing a really happy look for women and for um, young people and, you know, potentially also for people of color, but I don't know how the effects of that are going to work out um, just yet. Jen, just listening to you and and tossing this over to Dr. Tez, maybe this is the time and this is the moment for a universal childcare. Okay, you took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) If we have, like, a significant portion of the society has not now internalized how vital Yes. Accessible, affordable childcare is we're never going to get it. Like this is it. This is, this is the time that we have to think about it. And it's an economic argument. I mean, I think lots of people know me on Twitter is, is taking social policy and gender issues and making it about the economy. The last thing we should be doing. And, and for whatever reason, we can do this with men. We think about, okay, they have, they have all acquired all of this human capital. We want to make sure we put them in the least opportunity cost sector. This is how we get economic growth, blah, blah, blah. And then everybody goes, oh, but you can stay home. Mm-hmm. We have, women have been getting education at higher levels than men for a significant amount of time now. We are highly skilled. We are highly intelligent. We we are good, excellent leaders. Um, I hope we're seeing that now as well. To say that we are going to forego that economic growth because we don't fundamentally think that society has a role in raising children, are you going to lose it? Well, and look at the, look at the, hu- I mean, the, as you say, this is human capital that is laying waste. This is an economic good that we are wasting when it, it would be so easy in terms of shovel ready, you know, <laughs> diaper pail ready, you know, like diaper pail ready. Get- <laughs> I love that. <laughs> You know, let's unleash that human capital by getting childcare because it's, we're providing work for other women to be doing this by and large. And it's low cost and it's not capital intensive. This is labor intensive, easy peasy. Let's do it, guys. One of the things I wanted to talk about was just how we rethink globalization coming forward, because, you know, Canada's traditionally, you know, made its wealth by trading with other nations. And I think that even people who are fairly pro-trade, like myself, are looking at this pandemic and being like, holy shit, we're dependent on China and that might be a problem. Um, you know, we don't make a lot of critical resources here. Um, I'm concerned about food chain and food supply issues going forward. And I think that when we come out of this, whether that's two months or two years from now, People like me are going to look at this and say, we're going to have to incentivize certain strategic goods to be made locally because obviously we can't depend on major producers like like China and even to some extent the United States. How does that change our economic recovery going forward? Well, I mean, this reminds me of, um, I, I did a lot of really um, interesting historical research on the background to flow through shares. 
Um, what you have just said was actually Hot. in several budget speeches in the 40s um, and how awesome. we ended up subsidizing oil and gas <laughs> was for strategic reasons. I've written about this concept of strategic reasons. Um, this one's a little difficult because now we're balancing economic factors, strategic um, aspects, um, how close do we want to get to the United States again? <laughs> yeah, that's and also like like my concern about the United States is not that far removed from my concern about being too close to China. Not like I'm not I ain't fronting here. I'm just saying. So I mean, it's really one of the things we'll have to we have to come to grips with is the bits of economic growth that we have been eking out over the last several years have been solely due to our relationships with China. That strikes me as a problem. <laughs> just a bit of a problem. It's a global issue. That, global that was issue, every absolutely. country in the world yeah, absolutely. out their bits of economic growth because of the engine of China. Yes. You yeah. don't really have, and I mean, what, what prompts economic growth? You need an increase in your labor force. You need an increase in capital. You need an increase in natural resources. Uh, and you need entrepreneurship, innovation, those sorts of factors. China had it in spades because it was coming online as a, as a developed country. Um, India might be our next best bet, but we have to understand that if we are still chasing the dragon of economic growth, that we have to then balance all of these different factors. We are not going to get the levels of economic growth that we are always chasing if we um, curtail our global experience mm -hmm. with our products. Is that... Is that a bad thing? Uh, a lot of men tell me it is. Um, <laughs> Armin Yelmez um, talks a lot about sloth. And if that's what we want, again, it's trade-offs. And, and yeah. as an economist, I'm never going to tell you what you what you should do. I'll just tell you if you do this, this is this is trade-off. You're like you're like a lawyer. You're always going to answer every answer. It depends. <laughs> it depends. It really it depends. does depend. <laughs> it really does depend. If we go too internal, um, we will have there will be actually very serious economic consequences yeah. at a time when we're trying to um, grow it back out. I think that there are things that we can think about. So, I mean, I lived in BC for 10 years and I had a vegetable garden every year. He, we grew huge amounts of food. Um, since we moved here, I'm still trying to figure out the climate because I think winter lasted <laughs> like nine months. Um, <laughs> it's tricky. Uh, there's, but, some, there's some challenges. There are definitely some growing challenges here, but here um, last year, was very successful with tomatoes and potatoes and things like that. Um, I think, you know, think about those World War II posters about yeah. having your own community gardens. A food is something that we can address without there necessarily being this, a huge uh, internal turn. We can each individually become more responsible for our food production. Um, as you're saying, you know, canning, I mean, going back to some of these basics, which some of us always did. Well, because this, is, this is going back to the way my grandmother lived, right? Like this isn't, this isn't far removed from, from the realities that we lived not very long ago. In fairness, that also assumes that people have access to garden space yep. and live in a climate where they're going to be able to produce enough, enough yep. food. And so this is, that gets us at though municipal policies. Because if we haven't realized how much of our productive land we have paved oh, for cars, so true. 
there is land everywhere that we could put into productive capacity. One of the recommendations we actually put forward for municipal policy was instead of growing flowers, grow food, right? Mm -hmm. Why are you putting all of this money into these sort of beautifications when you could actually be growing public food that people could just go and, and eat? If you're going to plant trees, plant apple trees. Plant apple tree. I know we have a tree in our backyard and I don't know why it's there. It's one of those aspen trees, which everybody seems to grow here in Calgary. Uh, We're going to take it down and we will put up one apple tree and one pear tree. And then like in BC, where we grow a lot of these things. So we had two fruit trees in BC and we could call a company up and it would come and all of that food would go to the food bank. Uh, Looking at the global picture, we have instability, volatility coming out of the United States. We have inadequate information uh, coming out of China. We have Macron warning that the EU could unravel if we don't get a good package coming out of the EU. As we're looking on the at the global stage, what message do you have as an economist for what Canadians should be looking for and what we should be expecting from our own government? Things are better when we work together. Right. When we start working against each other, that's when things go really bad. And so I'm really concerned about how this is going to manifest itself when I see certain leaders saying some really concerning things about our public health authorities, what they knew, when they knew it, how they responded to it. Um, I, I see the politics burgeoning back up. We really need to remember that we as a world are all going through the same thing. And we need to support each other and we need to remember, uh, maybe this is how I will leave it. We are human beings. (laughs) All of us are human beings. People who are impacted are human beings. These are human beings. These are lives. These are parents. These are children, um, sisters and brothers. And, And I think we've lost sight of that. I think we should leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Ted. This has been a phenomenal conversation with so much content. I really, really appreciate your time and uh, expertise on this. It's always fun talking to people who can, you know, relate to the parent experience. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And the hell that that is at the moment. <laughs> Universal child care. That's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back in two weeks. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter at oppocast. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.